I led a team that developed an instrument for the Curiosity rover. It's actually still working on Mars. That instrument is called ChemCam, and it studies the chemistry uh, around uh, the Curiosity rover in Gale Crater. Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They're experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today for Superheroes of Science, we are so pleased to welcome Roger Weems, Roger is the principal investigator of the SuperCam instrument of the Perseverance rover that just landed this year on Mars. So welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Well, thanks so much, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. So this is, this, uh, well, I almost set out of this world. I'll try not to be that corny though. Oh, Whoops. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's what happens when we record in the afternoon. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, what what all do you what is let's first because like, I'm curious before we ask you this, some of the specific things, what do you do? What kind of scientist are you? That's you a good some, question. Yeah, some guy <laughs> just asked me what I am. I mean, what is this? <laughs> yeah, what kind of scientist am I? Uh, so my degrees are actually in physics, but uh, and then I, I wandered into planetary science, actually starting that with my physics uh, uh, thesis work where I was actually, even though in a physics department, I was studying uh, the uh, uh, isotopes and, and the uh, atmospheric uh, uh, composition of the Mars atmosphere as delivered to us by a meteorite from Mars. And uh, so little did I know that I would actually be pursuing Mars for the rest of my career. Uh, so then I went on and did a, a postdoc in geochemistry of the Earth and then, uh, then switched completely over into spacecraft work and started working, uh, first of all, on a mission that does cosmochemistry. Uh, and then after that, got pulled into uh, the two rovers, first, first of all, Curiosity and then Perseverance. And really uh, leading the team that, that develops and builds these instruments and then having the fun of using them to explore things on Mars. So uh, what kind of a scientist am I? Uh, I do a lot of different things. That's a good answer. <laughs> but you can't say that, that a meteor from Mars and just jump past that. We, we, we have to start there. What do you mean a meteorite from Mars? Yeah, well, uh, meteorites, these you know, basically shooting stars, but the ones that make it to the ground are called meteors. Uh, and uh, they, uh, or meteorites, I should say, and they, um, are there stones and they come from somewhere. And most of them come from the asteroids, uh, the, uh, their small bodies in the solar system. And our solar system is four and a half billion years old. It's it, uh, all of the meteorites pretty much uh, date to that age. And, uh, and we have the moon and other evidence for that. But then we ran into uh, some meteorites and I mean, the scientific community ran into some meteorites that have uh, a, uh, a younger age. And uh, they look like earth rocks, but uh, they were clearly meteorites. They were not earth rocks. And so the question was, what, what, what are they? And the uh, kind of the answer when I started my thesis work was they're the least, uh, Mars is the least unlikely place that they could be from. Uh, and uh, then while we were doing some research on that, it, it became clear that they had little, uh, 
little pieces of glass in them uh, that had captured uh, the atmosphere of Mars as we understood it at that time and still, uh, and, and that still holds true today. So, so I started out uh, doing some of the defining work on those meteorites showing that they are really from Mars. Now, how, how are you able to determine, I guess, first of all, how are you able to determine the age? And then how are you making comparisons between the atmosphere that's caught in the glass? And then, and then how do you know that that matches with the atmosphere from Mars? Yeah, uh, so uh, the radiometric dating is used to uh, measure the, the um, isotope ratios of some of the minerals in these meteorites. And uh, so understanding when, when they formed from a liquid and when they solidified into the different minerals and segregated some of the radioactive isotopes and uh, seeing how they decay since. Um, and that's, uh, that, that gives us these ages and it's worked very well. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so these, these, these had younger ages, whereas all, almost all of the meteorites, like I said, have this four and a half billion year birthmark on them, if you will. But uh, how, did we get, uh, how did we get little glassy uh, inclusions uh, that have uh, Mars atmosphere and how do we know it's a Mars atmosphere? So, I mean, the theory was originally that, that uh, Mars is too big to even knock something off the surface of Mars and get it out into space. But uh, these, these meteorites did, were shocked. We could tell that they had been through some pretty, uh, pretty physical rough environment at some point. And, uh, and, and some of the minerals had turned to glassy material. Uh, well, uh, this glassy material actually held a bunch of gas in it uh, that we could measure with mass spectrometers. And uh, looking at the, the ratios of the elements in that material, uh, it matched what we knew from the Viking spacecraft at that time. And that was uh, a number of years ago now. And we now have better uh, atmospheric measurements from Mars and it still matches. And so these are Martian meteorites. Um, and they have told us quite a lot about Mars, but uh, <clears throat> since we don't know where they're from and they're sort of mysterious in, 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 in you know, where they got chipped off of the surface of Mars, you know, we still have a lot of Mars to explore. And, uh, and we learn a whole lot more by being there and, and eventually by bringing back other samples as well. So what's the leading theory on how they got here? I mean, how did they escape the gravity of itself of Mars? And hey, how could they be, how did that happen? Yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah. So there must've been some fairly large impact. And when that happened on Mars, a bunch of material went flying up and some of it had basically the escape velocity. Uh, of uh, several kilometers per second and flew out into space. And uh, Mars is farther from the sun than the earth. And um, for certain reasons, uh, basically the, the, actually it's the sunlight that starts to actually cause material to slowly spiral in towards the inner, more inner part of the solar system. And so they eventually made their way to earth. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's how it happened. We know that they actually flew through space for several million years in many cases. And we can actually check that uh, time frame as well from some other isotopes. So it's a, it was very, very interesting studying these for my thesis work, absolutely. Did you say that it's the sunlight that causes those meteors to spiral inward? Very, very slowly on you know million year timescales, but yes. Uh -huh. 
Yeah, I fear it'd just be the gravity of the sun itself. What do you mean by sunlight causing it? Yeah, it's actually it's uh, something called the pointing Robertson effect, and it it, it it's uh, it, it it's basically that uh, the light is is shining a little bit more on one side than the other, and you wouldn't think that that would make much difference, but it does. And in the end, it actually causes things to very, very, very slowly move inward if they're small bodies. Things like Mars and Earth, we don't have to worry about if they're massive enough that they really don't get affected by this uh, by this effect. Well, how cool is that? That is that is very interesting. So yeah. I, I know that um, we have what perseverance out there now. Is that, yeah, yeah. I, I know. Okay, that's there, and uh, we're looking for possibilities of ancient life that was there, possibly even. And so could. It, it, this might be a little bit out there. You might tell me to calm down on this one. Uh, it, could this have been like evidence of like a, an extinction event where it hit hard enough and that's why it, we don't have as much atmosphere or, and that's how it got out? Could, could, that, could something like that have happened millions of years ago that you're seeing evidence from now? We're talking about extinction on, on Earth or Mars? Mars. Yeah. Mars. Uh, well, both planets would have gotten pummeled by, uh, by large uh, objects early in the solar system history. And uh, yeah, somehow uh, we have living organisms uh, on Earth. Uh, thank God we do. And, uh, and so far we haven't found the ones on Mars, but that's a surprise in, a, in, in effect because uh, Mars was a habitable planet way back then. And the place we're exploring with Perseverance was a lake. And we, we can see that very clearly. There was a river, it was emptying into that lake. We've already imaged some of the, the sediments that that, that that river brought into the lake. Um, but uh, you know, why there is, uh, why we haven't seen life on Mars yet, we don't know. Because if you think about that, hey, we had a meteorites that have come from Mars to Earth. We probably had something chipped off of Earth that might have gone to Mars. It's a harder way to go, getting further out in the solar system, but some of the things could make it there. And uh, so even if there was only life on Earth at one time, it could have spread to Mars. And so that's uh, uh, for several reasons that we could be looking for life on Mars. And uh, so I, we're, we're looking. <laughs> well, that's really a fascinating idea. And when I, I, I've never thought of that, that yeah, if you had some event where you had those you know, pieces of rock that were on Earth that they could have maybe made their way to Mars and potentially had some life that got transferred. That's really... Absolutely. That's... And we, we see material that has been ejected from Earth. Uh, there are materials called tektites. And they, uh, they're, they're, we can tell from the outer part of these rocks that they have actually flown through the atmosphere. They have this fusion across just like meteorites have but they're terrestrial material. And so we know that, the, that we've had big events on Earth that have thrown things out uh, into space. Uh, so yeah, this is uh, completely feasible. Oh, wow, that's, that's kind of a trip right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So what are you measuring? You And uh, I wanna say something with a laser and you're doing like remote or sensing. How is that? We'll jump into what you're actually doing now rather than th keep throwing theoretical ones at you <laughs> Fine. Yeah. what so what is that what is that you're doing and how are you getting the data 
Yeah, I'll, actually, I'll step back a little bit. I, I, I led a team that developed an instrument for the Curiosity rover first, and that's actually still working on Mars. That instrument is called ChemCam, and it studies the chemistry uh, around the, the Curiosity rover in Gale Crater. And what it does is it fires a laser, a pulsed laser, so you have this uh, five billionths of a second beam that's very powerful, uh, and it's focused down to a spot about the size of a pinhead. <clears throat> and it actually creates a little flash when that uh, hits the rock. Uh, and we use a telescope up on the top of the rover to image that flash and get the light back. What's happening in that flash is that all of the atoms that just got hit by that laser beam, by those uh, massive photons, massive flux of photons, uh, have come screaming off of the rock, really hot, 10,000 degrees, and they're glowing very briefly. Uh, but looking at that, we get the atomic emission spectrum of the materials in the rock. So we can we have a, basically a signature of the chemicals that are in the rock, and by calibrating that, we get the composition. And that uh, technique turns out it's called LIBS, laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. And so we introduced that to uh, the planetary science community to study planets. Uh, it's now being used not just on Curiosity, but on Perseverance and also on the Chinese rover as well, because I think they decided it was a good idea. Uh, but on, so on Perseverance, we have that technique called LIBS and to study the chemistry around the, around the rover by shooting at rocks. Uh, but then um, NASA wanted uh, uh, mineralogy to be studied from the rover's remote sensing as well. So not just chemistry, but the mineral content. And we can tell a lot of different things by both of these. You can take a ring on your finger and it may be diamond, it may be carbon that is, but uh, it makes a big difference whether that ring on your finger has graphite on it, which is pencil lead, or whether it's really a diamond. And those are different minerals, right? But the same chemical. Likewise, from chemistry of different minerals, you can tell different things as well. So uh, now with SuperCam, we study both the chemistry and the mineralogy, and it's very complementary. It tells us a lot more things. So to study the mineralogy, we, we added two new techniques, infrared vision, and then also a, Ram, a technique, another laser technique called Raman spectroscopy. So now we're doing a whole handful of things with a single instrument, SuperCam. Is it, is it all based on what the, for the IR, what are you, are you looking in the IR um, image of it or the, of the spectra when you explode small amounts? Yeah, so we do it at a different, at different times than the, when we're exploding the small amounts of rock. Um, and uh, yeah, so we're just basically using sunlight on the rocks and then uh, looking at the, basically the infrared color of the rock, which um, uh, some clay minerals, things that contain water, not just clay, but uh, uh, also sulfate minerals, uh, some carbonates have absorptions in the uh, certain wavelengths of the infrared spectrum. And so uh, with that, we can start to tell, oh, there's, uh, you know, there's a water-bearing uh, water mineral here. And so we start to, uh, and, and that's some of the minerals that we're actually most interested in for habitability, because it tells us about the conditions in the lake and so on. So uh, yeah, and it's actually not, uh, we don't get an image in the infrared, we actually just get the spectrum of, of different points. And so we'll shoot, uh, we'll, 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 we'll get those spectrum of different places. 
And it will typically do that the same place that we get the chemistry. Are we limited with the minerals that we already know about, or is it possible that we could just find other minerals that maybe wouldn't necessarily be in the catalog or the index or, or what was using? How, how does that work if there's like a new mineral that would be discovered? Yeah, Sarah, that's, a, that's an exciting idea. Uh, we know most of the minerals that we expect to find on Mars, um, especially like the igneous materials. Um, Mars has different conditions in the Earth in terms of its, uh, you know, the recipe you could say that goes into it, the chemistry. Uh, Mars surface is especially enriched in iron and sulfur and chlorine. Um, and so we could get, we, we, it could turn out that we would discover a new iron rich mineral or, um, or uh, some sulfur-rich minerals and so on. And so there is at least one mineral that I'm aware of that is named after a location on Mars because that's where it was discovered and that's Meridianiite by the Mer rovers that were in Terra Meridiani. Um, but uh, there's also minerals that are not very well known on, uh, on, on Earth that may all of a sudden pop up on Mars. Like, uh, for example, I was just researching or looking into another mineral that I didn't know much about. Talc is a magnesium-rich uh, silicate, but it has a um, sort of a twin that's an iron-rich uh, silicate that's called Minnesotaite because it was discovered in Minnesota, my home state originally. And uh, so uh, I was thinking, hmm, we might find Minnesotaite on Mars someday. So yeah, this is an interesting proposition. What either unique or unusual minerals we could find there on Mars. And when you mentioned talc, the first thing I think of, and I, I, I guess I'm asking if you think this would be true, is there a very low chance of finding a softer mineral on Mars? Were the, are the conditions there not conducive to softer things like a talc? Yeah, so uh, what we have happening on Mars is a lot of uh, sort of mechanical erosion. And uh, so, uh, so soft rocks, yeah, they tend to get weathered away in a sense. Um, and it's kind of interesting. We have quite a different um, uh, uh, loss processes or weathering processes on Mars than on Earth. On Earth, we have chemical weathering. And so you got all the rain coming down. And, and uh, so uh, minerals that are susceptible to uh, um, uh, leaching by water uh, get, you know, they, they, we lose them pretty fast on Earth. Um, and on Mars, it's, uh, we can find these minerals in spades, but we find that minerals that are soft, that are susceptible to physical abrasion, they disappear. So yeah, that's a good question, Steve. Very insightful. Well, I just, I just think of the conditions there and I'm like, could it survive? And so it's, <laughs> But it, when, and when you say oh, uh, the lake, like Perseverance is going in an ancient lake bed, when you say lake, in this case, you do mean it was filled with uh, water, liquid water, right? Yes. Yeah. It, it seems to me when we got pictures back, like from Pluto, it, they had oceans, but not of water, right? Yeah. Right. So Mars was somehow warm enough that it could have, uh, that it did have, uh, was able to have uh, lakes. And uh, so looking at where Mars is uh, relative to the Earth and the Sun, Mars is really classified as being in the habitable zone of our solar system along with Earth. Um, and in fact, if Mars was a bigger planet and was able to hold on to its atmosphere, 
then Mars would be uh, a habitable place today. Um, and uh, it's really only because Mars is only one-tenth as massive as the Earth. So it's the combination of being farther away and smaller that led to its doom as a real habitable planet. Uh, that's too bad, but that's the way it is. And thank, thank goodness we have Earth. Yeah, it's, it's a handy planet to have around. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's the fact that it's smaller and farther, that's why it doesn't have an atmosphere like we have? That's right. Yeah, the, the smaller, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. lost atmosphere. So it just needs to have uh, more gravity, more mass to be able to hold that in. The atmosphere itself. That's yeah, that's that's exactly right. And if you think about this, you know, we have we have Earth, then we have Mars. That's a little smaller and it has a very thin atmosphere, one percent is thick. And then we have planets, uh, you know, or not or not planets, but the Moon, which doesn't have an atmosphere effectively at all. And if you go in the other direction beyond Earth to bigger planets, then you have these gas giants, right, which are almost all atmosphere and more than the solids. So yeah. There's this whole continuum. And Mars is just a little too small to have that atmosphere that would actually warm it up with the greenhouse effect like Earth has uh, and, uh, and, and keep it warmer in this farther part of the habitable zone. All right, so you, you might have just ruined me just a little bit right there. You might have spoiled so many sci-fi movies that I've, that I've seen because I think you just told me that we're not gonna be able to terraform Mars and create an atmosphere. Is that what I just heard? Yeah, so there was a, I mean, I've always kind of hoped that myself and thinking, yeah, you know, if we waited long enough, it's like, well, you know, humans built the pyramids and if we kept on working at something like that or just got the engine started that, you know, in 4,000 years, maybe it would be like warm enough. But in fact, uh, there was a paper that was just recently published um, that just looked at all of the carbon resources on near the surface of Mars and kind of put it all together and, and said, what if we put this all into carbon dioxide or, or even methane and carbon dioxide, would it be enough? And the answer was no. And so that's a real downer, but it uh, doesn't mean we can't send humans to Mars, make uh, habitable uh, places there in caves and so on, but it's never gonna be kind of the, the balmy kind of place that, uh, that we have in Purdue, uh, at Purdue in summer. I am never going to watch a sci-fi movie the same now. You might have ruined those for me, some of them. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> have to be a different planet. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, that is so cool. Now, the, the lasers that you use, I mean, I have like a laser pointer, and it takes pretty small batteries, but uh, your laser is pretty far away, and you can't change the batteries. And uh, I'm assuming yeah. it's a little bit bigger, more powerful than my laser pointer. Yeah, actually, Steve, since you said that, it reminds me of how I got started in this. Uh, actually, I'll mention this. Um, it's actually written up in this book, Red Rover, uh, that was published uh, after Curiosity landed. But uh, how I got started in this is that a colleague, when I arrived uh, here at Los Alamos National Laboratory, uh, showed me this technique, uh, this LIBS technique. And he uh, had a, uh, just a very small laser the size of about two fingers. And, uh, and he actually charged, or he charged up some capacitors from a little transistor radio battery and, uh, and, then, and then shot that laser across the room at this rock. So, so it really doesn't take that much power. But um, yeah, so we, we use these, uh, these lasers um, and they're neodymium YAG lasers, if we wanna actually say the name of them. 
Um, uh, I will say that uh, the ChemCam and SuperCam instruments, we got a little help. Um, they're uh, uh, actually, it works out really well if we can partner with a, with a friend, friendly country to work on these things. Uh, and that's what we did uh, with uh, I, I had a postdoc friend who went back to France. He pitched this to his French colleagues. They started working on the laser and they, um, uh, well, I joke that the French get the sexiest part of the instrument, but they built the laser and we built the sensor parts and we worked together on this. And the US taxpayer pays only half the money. Uh, the French government uh, paid the other half. And uh, you know, France thinks they own this instrument. The US thinks we own this instrument. And as long as we don't tell each other, then it's all fine, right? Uh, and we all so, get the data from it. It, it, it works really well. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a, th those are those are French lasers, but uh, we're, we're doing just fine on that. We built the sensors, and uh, and we all work together happily. Uh, see, so is that a common thing in science? In this, because you you deal with instrumentation and stuff. Is it common for like countries and just like a science community to to more work together than to compete when you're doing research science like yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, competition sometimes is good in that it, it, it spurs us to work on better and better things. But uh, yeah, if we can find, I mean, these are big projects and there's, you know, things cost a lot of money when you have to work on something that's going to be reliable enough to work for years on another planet. And so if we can spread the cost around and find people that are reputable and, and uh, reliable and friendly to work with, uh, you know, then uh, the sky is the limit, you can say, or, or not even the limit. And uh, so, yeah, uh, we've loved working together and uh, it's been it's been great. I talk uh, with uh, French colleagues every single day. Oh, wow. See, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Now, something we probably should have asked Bryony back when we interviewed her before Perseverance was launched. How is this powered? So yes, both Curiosity and Perseverance are uh, have nuclear uh, batteries in them, effectively, and so they have a, a small amount of, of material that uh, that creates a bunch of heat um, from radioactive decay, and that heat is then converted to electricity uh, in what's called a radiothermal isotope generator (RTG). And uh, so that, that uh, the heat, uh, is, it's a solid state conversion, not terribly efficient, but it still creates 100 watts uh, at a time uh, constantly. And uh, so there is a, ba a conventional battery in the rover as well, so that we can charge up the conventional batteries during the, during the nighttime, because the nuclear battery is always putting out this constant amount of electricity. And so we use more electricity during the day, charge it up, charge the conventional batteries up at night, and that, that works well. We do have to be fairly energy efficient with the instruments, um, but, but a, a sort of a, a side benefit of this is that this also keeps the rover body warm. There is a fluid loop, uh, almost like the radiator uh, from your car is, uh, is putting out excess heat from your engine. Uh, the fluid loop in the uh, rovers uh, goes from the RTG and goes into the body of the rover, warms that body, and then if it's if it's warm enough, it actually uh, shunts it out to another radiator. But uh, this whole thing works to actually both heat and power the rover, and does a really great job of it. Oh, uh, I'm gonna be honest. I thought you were gonna tell me solar power. That it, 
I did not expect that. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's, um, it's more um, compact and efficient than the, than the solar power. And so the earlier generations of rovers uh, did have solar power. Um, we could actually use both, but uh, this is a, a bit more compact and gives us a bigger punch. Uh, and it's going to last for uh, for at least a decade, so we're we're good. Oh, that's awesome! <laughs> so, how long has Curiosity been on there? Curiosity landed in August of 2012, and it's gone I think 27, 26 kilometers, and uh, it has climbed uh, over a thousand feet in elevation, uh, and that's about over well over 400 meters in metric. And uh, so it's, uh, it started in the lowest part of this massive crater, 90 miles wide. And then there's a, uh, there's a mountain in the middle and uh, it has been climbing the mountain ever since about 2014. Uh, and just, uh, it's a, a gradual at first and it's gotten steeper and steeper. And the, uh, the views from this thing are, are, are absolutely amazing. I had such a difficulty tearing myself away from this mission back in February as, as Perseverance was landing. But uh, it's a fabulous mission still, and we expect it to go for a few more for a few more years, uh, Earth years. Well, that's awesome. Oh my gosh. Now, night and day, a day isn't the same as an Earth day, is it there? So the night day cycle is 24 hours, 38 minutes. So it's almost the same as Earth, yeah. And that's okay. what's so... Uh, uh, you know, so uh, so human-like, so Earth-like in a sense. You know that that makes us want to go there in a, in another. Uh, in <laughs> Why is it called SuperCam? The name SuperCam. Uh, you know, it it, uh, it was a uh, it was a nickname, and it stuck. Doesn't that happen often? Um, too often, I suppose. But yeah, we had ChemCam on Curiosity and. Uh, then you know we got word as the new rover was uh, being defined. Uh, there was actually a, a, a science team that was defining what it should do, and all of that. And they said, "Look, you have to study mineralogy with remote sensing. Um, you're studying chem chemistry with ChemCam." So, uh, and, and we were like, well, "What are we going to do?" And we came up with these other two techniques that we added and. And actually, uh, I should mention that there's a microphone on board now, too, and we've got the imaging. So it really does a lot of different things, and we just didn't know what to call it. We wanted it to sound like ChemCam or uh, kind of hark back to that heritage, because the two instruments look a lot alike, and they both use lasers. Uh, so we just started saying, well, this is kind of a super version of ChemCam, and started calling it SuperCam. And then we were going to say, well, we were always going to name it something different, and we could we just couldn't find a different name for it. And uh, so, you know, I mentioned that we're partnering with France and the Europeans on this. Uh, um, the French culture loves cartoons, right? And so pretty soon here comes a picture of, of SuperCam. It's like a very muscular body with, you know, the, the mast of the rover as its head and it's just shooting this laser out. And so that is the moniker for SuperCam now. So, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And again, not the answer I expected. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that uh, answer. I know sometimes I just really lack the creativity to come up with fun-sounding ideas or, or you know just good titles for things, and that's just totally something I can relate to. Like it's kind of a super. Yeah. Hey, that's a great name. Let's call it Super Game. Well, I've learned a lot of things from being on this project and from uh, sharing cultures, and one of them was, "Hey, let's be creative." So uh, yeah. yeah, it's a lot of fun. Very fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just took the assumption there was some witty acronym that someone came up with, not a nickname. That's, no acronym. I'm going to ask about, because you had mentioned that the asteroid, the close approach of the asteroid. Yeah, if you got a minute, you want to explain that? Yeah. that? I forgot. I was too excited about everything else. I'm sorry. No. I just, I was going, just going back through, I saw it, but also I wasn't for sure when that close approach was, and I tried looking up a little bit of information. I was having trouble finding something, but um Anyways, I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah, so I put the uh, I put it on my calendar, and I know it's sometime this month, in November uh, twenty twenty one, but uh, I can't remember exactly which day it is. It doesn't really matter a, a whole lot because uh, you know, I mean, the close approach is still quite very far away. Uh, you know, many many uh, I think it's over a hundred million miles or close to it. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so uh, this asteroid. Uh, got named after me, I guess. Uh, the International Atomic <laughs> IAU, uh, uh, International, Astronom uh, International Astronomical Union, names uh, bodies in the solar system. And uh, it was like a friend of a friend who said, well, this guy should, uh, should have one named after him. And uh, so the funny thing was, <clears throat> they didn't tell me they were going to do this. And so we were sitting at a meeting for the CAMCAM -CAM team. And um, somebody wanted to inject another talk into the meeting. And I'm like, well, we're already running late. What are we going to do this for? And, and it's like, no, this is important. So they, they got up and they started talking. And I wasn't paying much attention. And they, and they said, well, you know, we really think we should image, use ChemCam to image this asteroid because it has this name on it and uh, with, uh, uh, with the name Weems. And so, uh, then I started paying attention and realizing that they were, that they had honored me in a very, very nice way, but they were playing a joke on me with it too. And it was just, uh, <laughs> you know, this is the nature of the team. We're uh, just really fun loving, very hardworking, but also fun loving and very respectful. And it's, uh, it's been so fun working with them all. That is awesome. Wonderful. That's that considered is... a near, it is, I don't know if it's just a movie I saw last weekend, the sci-fi movie with the, the near earth event or whatever, or something like that. Is there actually a name for them if they come within a certain range? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> near earth asteroids that come within a certain range. And this is not one of them. So it stays out in the asteroid belt. So don't worry. They're not going to get hit by weeds. <laughs> <laughs> But it's in the belt, so will it circuit? Uh, will it come back around? Yeah, yeah. So it'll be another close approach in several more years. Yeah. And with all the asteroids there, how do they know it's that one? How do they know that it's yours? Yeah. So I mean, these. Uh, I mean, uh, over the years, astronomers have made made catalogs of all the bodies in the solar system that they can keep track of, and so this is uh, you know a small body, a few kilometers, and. And uh, so it's um, they, you know, you first spotted by taking, uh, you know, pictures of the night sky with all the stars, 
and then coming back and taking a picture again sometime later and then doing comparing them using a blink process basically to go back and forth between the two images and if you see something that's there and it's a little farther over some other time and all the other stars are still the same they didn't move then you start to realize well that's something that's a little closer to the earth than the stars and that's how we find all of our objects in the solar system and then from that and, and then maybe a, a third night that you see it some other time you can start to put together uh, its trajectory and see where it goes in the solar system and uh, yeah it's a very fascinating uh, field of astronomy and uh, yeah it's, it's, i'm glad people are keeping track of that because there are some that come close to the earth and that they are some some that uh, we have, might have to deal with sometime in the future history. Yeah, it's a big universe. Yep. Well, that is so cool. I'm pretty sure that I know of. You're the first guest we've had that has their own asteroid. Yes, <laughs> I think I can second that. <laughs> I don't know if I own it. I mean, I I don't think I could sell it to anyone, right? I don't own the real estate, so uh, right. Well, you know, what what good is it if it just has your name on it? You can't get some money off of it, right? But anyway, whatever. <laughs> just find out some way you could like rent it for a week or something. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We'll figure that out. Well, space tourism, you know, it's 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 getting bigger and bigger. So maybe I can suggest <laughs> yes, that somebody is. stay night on our asteroid. Huh? Oh. <laughs> cool idea. Thanks. You get you get a commission for that, right? Yeah. One <laughs> percent for the idea or something, right? Four centuries from now. But anyway. That's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for the time. We thank you so time. much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down! <laughs>